You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. This is Why We Do What We Do, and this is your host, Abraham. And this is Shane. And so today we are taking on a heavy topic, metaphorically speaking. We're talking about grief and bereavement. And before we jump into that, let's actually do a quick, you know, I guess PSA maybe, but acknowledgement of the elephant in the planet, which is this virus, the coronavirus, COVID-19, and that that's been going around and it sucks and it has us homeward bound. We're both seem to be sort of just stuck at home for the time being. Hopefully our jobs are safe. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's been interesting because for those of you who don't know or who haven't seen like any of the videos that we do and stuff, we all kind of record remotely because we are spread out across the United States. So our team here at Why We Do What We Do is usually pretty good at practicing social distancing anyway. I think just by the nature of geography. But yeah, this is a really tough time. So hopefully you're out there being kind to people. You're washing your hands. You're only going out unless it's absolutely 100% necessary but more importantly, being kind to the people around you. By virtue of geography, I like that. This is going to be a few weeks out, so who knows how much the news will have evolved at the time that we're recording this. I'll just say we don't usually give the date because we like these to maintain, but it's right around the last week of March or so, and this will come out in a few weeks, so a lot will probably have changed as usually things, and the rate the news is going right now, things are changing rapidly throughout the day. So three weeks is basically an eternity from now in terms of what's going on with this. So yeah, hopefully if you've been touched by this in one way or another, either you have, you've gotten COVID-19 or you know someone who has, or your job was affected by it or your grocery store is out of toilet paper for some reason. We're just saying, you know, that sucks. And as you mentioned, like, let's just be kind to one another and do our best here. Toilet paper of all things. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. And then just to let you know, like we are planning to, we're, we're, we're homeward bound, so we're just going to be sitting here recording episodes. I think we'll probably get a pretty decent backlog going, um, which will be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so. so there, there is some, some light there. I wonder how, you know, I guess maybe disconnected from reality these episodes will get the longer that we stay inside. Uh, maybe very. I don't know. It'll be an experiment. Yeah. We'll so. see. And like, this is episode 153. So we'll see, you know, by the time episode 160 comes around, how okay we are. <laughs> yes. Hopefully very okay. <laughs> yeah. Ideally, we would be very okay. I think, I think doing the podcast will help us stay very okay. Yeah. Honestly, like it's, I found myself immediately missing people as soon as like social distancing sort of came into place, even when I could be around people, but had to keep my distance from them. I felt just the sort of isolated feeling. And it's only gotten worse, you know, as now it's like businesses are shut down, you know, even, you know, work is shut down. Any contact I get with people, I appreciate. And it's, it's made me uh, love people a lot more, even, you know, I, I feel like I'm humanitarian. That's my values are uh, humanitarian. At least I'd I like to believe that they are. I hope that they are. But I definitely have found myself out there being like, oh, look at there's other, there's other people around. Yay. Yeah. It's a little bit nice yeah. when you do see people like you hear these like neighborhoods or like you see those videos of like people singing from their balconies and like the whole the whole group of people are singing together. Like that feels good. That's nice. Yeah. Went to a park the other day just to go for a walk just so we could be outside and not stuck in the house the whole time. And, you know, everybody was several yards away from one another or for our metric friends, several meters away from one another. We weren't close or touching anything, but it was, you know, it was just happy to see people 
living life and being out and about. So yeah, maybe uh, a recommendation is is go for a walk. <laughs> but I'm getting I'm getting way ahead of myself because this episode hasn't even started yet. I'm trying to I'm trying to end it. <laughs> Let's go ahead and talk about grief. So to kind of start, grief can be for many things, and we can recognize that it can be for any type of loss. But most commonly, when you hear it discussed, it's usually in association with death. And so that's the angle we're going to take for the majority of the discussion. We're going to focus on this idea of grief as it relates to death or uh, that type of loss. But just know that when we do speak about it, it could apply to different things like a loss of opportunities, a loss of friendship, a loss of any number of things that could come up. How do you deal with grief yourself? Oh, I do not. I do not. So (laughs) (laughs) I have shared this story before, but a lot of the reasons why I'm an atheist now is because of experience that I had with loss early on in my formative years. The story is that within like a six month period, I lost about six or seven people that I was really close to and all of their stories and all the context around that was kind of like, you know, it was a a father of kids who was a good man and just was a a hard worker and was this horrible accident happened at work and uh, just all this stuff. And so I don't deal with it very well. One thing I've learned more recently, especially in the last like year or so, having lost people is that I tend to avoid it and put my head down and just work on stuff and just kind of disconnect from anything to have to actually like connect with that experience, which probably isn't great. That's kind of my experience with it is like, I've, I've lost a lot of people, uh, a lot of family members, a lot of friends, a lot of people I cared about and just in pets too. Like you mentioned, we've talked about in our conversations and just that's, I just don't deal with it very well at all. Yeah, no, I, I'm similar in my approaches, that sort of denial. And we'll, we'll talk about what you might think of as the stages of grief that have been discussed that you may or may not have heard about. And But yeah, I'm similar. And I just try and and get away from that feeling, which might not be the, the most useful way of approaching it in the world. But you know, similarly, I think I don't know if there's anyone alive who has not been touched by grief in some capacity. But this is something that I also feel like I... I have particularly hard time sort of getting over and dealing with in a really straightforward and sort of healthy way. And also, as you'd mentioned, you know, I've lost a parent, lost many family members, friends, pets, opportunities, relationships. It's useful for me to maybe think about in light of all the things that I've lost, I also have not lost as much as I could have or as other people have. And I'm really lucky to continue to have the things in my life that I have. So it may be useful to see the balance there that exists. But anyway. I want to point out that before we dive into our discussion on grief here, that this, of course, I think everybody listening knows this, but just make sure we're really upfront about the fact that this episode is not intended to serve as a source of therapy for people who are experiencing this. This is not like a mental health counseling show or episode. If you are experiencing this, seek help from a mental health professional. There's an online service I've learned about recently called BetterHelp. I can't vouch for the quality of this service at all. I don't really know a lot about it. I just know that it's, I think, supposed to be designed for people to easily contact a therapist, particularly when they are far away from a therapist. But even if they're not, you know, it might be a way that's just more convenient than trying to set aside a specific time of your day to like travel to an office or something and go see a therapist. And as I understand it, they work with people at various levels of income as well. So if they want to sponsor the show, since we just buzz marketed them really hard, well, <laughs> that'd be great. But otherwise, that might be a resource for people if you're interested in checking it out. You know, as we go through this episode, we're going to try to do an overview of what grief is, the history of how it's been talked about in psychology, and some of the ways that people have approached treating grief and some of the more useful ways, hopefully. 
All right, so let's go ahead and give some background information on this thing. Let's begin by defining it. This comes from the French word, maybe grieve or greve, or how did you tr- say it earlier when we were talking about it? I think it's a uh, graval. Graval, yeah. Which means a heavy burden. So grief and bereavement are intense feelings of suffering, mourning, regret, or sorrow, and it's usually following some sort of loss or major affliction that are going on. And so that's the history of the word. So you might say, Shane, that it's more than a feeling. More than a feeling. <laughs> I love how high that guy's voice gets in that song. Yeah, I agree. Good, very good song. It's such a good song. So basically, when we start kind of going into this, you'll see that grief is pretty difficult to define, specifically because people experience it so differently. You know, context matters. And so when we start talking about what people are grieving, how they grieve, and how people do tend to grieve and, and their perspectives on things, you'll see that people tend to do a whole lot of different things. But for the purposes of our talk here, we're going to define it as emotional and physical pain that accompanies loss in whatever loss might be. It might be loss of some loved one. It might be loss of some kind of relationship or something along those lines, but that's what we're going to focus on today. Yeah. And actually we will touch more on the different types of loss that sort of exist out there. But one of the things that I believe that we mentioned when we covered phantom limb pain is like for many people, things like loss of a limb can feel that can result in the experience of grief. And some people have reported feeling that they have feel like they have essentially lost an opportunity at living the kind of life that they wanted to live and that they feel like if they don't have the same kind of access that they used to that they maybe don't want to even try and continue going on and so there can be a real a lot of difficulty suffering things with things like that and i do want to point out like there are some really great therapies out there for helping people who have an amputated limb of some sort so if you are experiencing this again seek help for those things Another one that I see a lot too is when families that we work with get diagnoses, you know, when the first time that a family might receive an autism diagnosis or something along those lines, I see a lot of families who will grieve the life that they thought they were going to have, you know, immediately. And I see a lot of families kind of come out of that, but you do see that kind of at the, you know, the initial reaction being that, uh, oh, I, this, you know, this is kind of a forever diagnosis there, though there's no way this could, that my kid could have autism. You know, you see kind of like those stages that we're going to talk about. And it's really tough for some families to kind of receive that because there is like a grieving and bereavement related to losing that life they thought they were going to have. Yeah. And for most people, for those who have biological children, and this might be different for adopting, I don't know, but for those who are having biological children, you spend nine months sort of working yourself up to what's it going to be for the rest of my life to be a parent of this child, to get them involved in sports or music or like have them love all the things that I love or whatever, maybe just have the life that they want to have. And all of a sudden, all of that feels like it gets torn away from you. And it's uh, for many people, it feels like losing their kid and that can be really tough. So although we will talk a lot about death specifically in this discussion, I do want to acknowledge that we are referring to essentially any kind of loss and that might be accompanied by a feeling of, of grief or bereavement. And it is useful when we're talking about the experience that people have and the expectations of what you might feel when you're experiencing grief. I assume that anybody who's listened to this has already experienced this in some capacity. But the expectations that often people feel include things like being confused, experiencing guilt, even if there's not anything specifically to feel guilty about. In addition, grief can be temporary or indefinite. And this prolonged grief 
that is called complicated grief can last for months or even years. And if it's left unchecked and if it is prolonged, it can lead to other experiences such as feeling lonely, depressed, a sense of being isolated. This can also result in other things like um, insomnia, just a general lack of feeling and finding pleasure in things that used to be preferred activities or experiences, a loss of appetite. So even like the most basic needs that we have for things that would keep us alive and well, they seem like they become less important sometimes for people who are experiencing trauma and grief for some of these things. So again, just to make sure we hit that point very clearly, if you do feel like you're experiencing any of these symptoms, seek help from a mental health professional. Yeah, I had a family member who had lost a parent years and years and years ago. And we're talking, I would say, you know, something close to 15 years. And they ended up getting into substance abuse really bad. And so you see this kind of because they never really kind of got the help that they needed to get through it, which, you know, that's not everybody's experience, but that was their experience in particular. And it's been a whirlwind of just things falling apart because they never really got the help they needed when they needed it. So if you start seeing that you have any of these symptoms, definitely worth looking at some kind of help to kind of guide you through it, because they're not going to be able to fix the loss that person, but they're going to kind of help you navigate it so that you have somebody that's got a steady hand to navigate those waters. Yeah. Find a way and whatever it might look like to try and cope with the loss in, in a healthy way. Right. It's also important and kind of useful to note that all death is natural because all things die, which is heavy. <laughs> that's a heavy thing yeah. to kind of like have that realization, but that's just the kind of the logical nature of things. That's how the world and the universe works around us. And so as we start looking at that, though, it's important as far as context goes to understand that every life is unique and each death is unique. And so, you know, when you start talking about this, the experience of grief that one feels is also likely to be unique. So it's all circumstantial. It's all contextual. And, and that's a big part of the lens we're going to look at this through. Which makes it extremely difficult to have things like precise definitions, precise descriptions of the experience and expectations. All you can really hope for is broad categories. So many people likely have heard of the idea of there being stages of grief. And going into this, I initially was ready to criticize that pretty heavily until I really read into what this was about. So let's actually give a nice, a thorough overview of this idea of the stages of grief. This was originally proposed by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and David Kessler. I think that maybe Kessler was a student of Ross or they, they worked together in some capacity, but those were the two who originally proposed that idea of there being stages of grief. Yeah. And so they described the five general emotional categories that one might experience in the face of grief. And so you've probably heard these where they talk about denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And we're going to go into each one of those specifically. Have you seen the Simpsons skit that's really old where Homer, like something happens and the doctor is listing each symptom and every one he does? Yeah. Every time he lists one, Homer like basically exemplifies it. It'd be funny to try and include that clip in here, but essentially he's like denial and homer's immediate reaction is like no way i don't have that and his anger and then homer's like are oh, you a little <laughs> and then after he, after he goes to all the stages 
And Homer, after acceptance, Homer's like, "Yeah, hey, what are you going to do? And the doctor's <laughs> like, I must say, I'm surprised at the, the speed of your progress or something like that. Pretty funny. You know, it's a shame that the symptoms don't get as much credit. I mean, they get a lot of credit, but they deserve way more for being a very smart comedy in that regard. Like there are lo- such little things in there that you're like, that's brilliant. And people just miss it. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very awesome show. So anyway, we were talking about the stages of grief. <laughs> And where the criticism came in, and this was, again, a misunderstanding I had because I I only sort of briefly contacted this previously, is that the stages were actually not proposed as an isolated template of the only possible emotions that one might feel around grief. They're also not proposed to be necessarily the order that one might be expected to feel those stages in. So it's a misunderstanding, I think, that if I had, other people had, that the proposal Although it listed them in that order, it did not actually intend to say this is the order that they go in. And it also did not intend to say this is the only thing that people feel when they're experiencing grief. In fact, Kessler pointed out that because everyone's unique circumstance around their personal experience with loss, which in this case might mean death, that makes the experience of the loved ones in that person unique. And he elaborated that the stages quote, are a part of the framework that makes up our learning to live with the one we lost. They are tools to help us frame and identify what we may be feeling, but they are not stops on some linear timeline in grief. Not everyone goes through all of them or in a prescribed order. Our hope is that with these stages comes the knowledge of grief's terrain, making us better equipped to cope with life and loss, end quote. So I think that that summarizes very nicely, essentially the point I was trying to make about where they were coming from with the those stages. Yeah. So it's definitely more like a Venn diagram than it is like a linear progression. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. So let's talk about these stages for a moment. Let's, let's dig into each one of these. And the first one we're going to talk about is denial. So despite its name, the denial stage in particular has more to do with delaying or avoiding the experience of all the types of emotions one might feel. So Kubler-Ross and Kessler explained that denial looks like, quote, numbness, unquote, and, quote, shock. And it is a way to express only small amounts of emotion at a time to avoid being overwhelmed. The next one that they talk about is anger, and they essentially list this as a way of taking action or to feel like you are sort of, quote, unquote, doing something. And this anger can often be directed at kind of anyone and everyone who is around. So the person who's experiencing loss might feel anger at the medical professional who is involved, angry at people who were also affected by the loss, angry at random strangers who don't know about or maybe don't care about the loss. So Kubler, Ross, and Kessler argue that leaning into this emotion actually can help allow it to dissipate more quickly and more completely. And so you might say, honestly, you know what? Just go nuts. Like Hulk out for a second. Just do that. I'm not sure that I agree necessarily with that recommendation, but maybe they're saying like you will sort of tire yourself out if you really allow yourself to just experience the anger fully. Yeah. I mean, I could, I guess, understand that, but we're going to dig into some of the stuff that's a little bit more helpful later. That's like in the research. So right. bargaining is characterized by quote unquote, what if, and if only, right? 
And these are like these thoughts and statements that somebody can have around the experience. It largely serves as a self-directed anger. So what you see a lot in bargaining is this idea that, you know, how can I fix this or how can I make this, make sure this never happens again? Those types of ideas might start to emerge a little bit. And this can also look like pleading to care professionals such as doctors or pleading to a God. So it's almost like just making a deal or seeing like, you know, what I can do to fix this or repair this or improve this or prevent this from ever happening again. It, there's a lot of different things that kind of come up in this bargaining space. And it sort of comes back to this idea of this getting an action around this, of feeling like there might be a sense of sort of a loss of control in these situations. And there's sort of this, this motivation to try and regain some of that by taking some sort of action is sort of a theme I'm seeing here. The next stage here is this idea of depression. And this is characterized by Withdrawal, general reduction in self-care and routine behaviors. There's often a lack of clear emotional reaction to anything that is, be it joyous or sad. And it gives the appearance of sort of indifference or an utter lack of motivation to engage. So I think there's a common misconception that if there is depression, it's just weepiness and sadness. But often it looks a lot more like that idea of sort of shock of just like nothing matters. That's a lot closer to the idea of what's going on here is just a, a, a lack of of engagement with life. And in this stage, few things are experienced as important to that person who is experiencing this bereavement. And even what used to be the most highly valued experience for that person might stop seeming like they're important at all. Yeah, that's the thing that happens here in this idea of depression. Yeah, you'll see people like a general apathy is probably a better descriptor of it. Like they yes. just don't really care. If food doesn't taste the same. Like music doesn't sound as good. That kind of thing. Yeah. Good description there. I like yeah, that. Yeah. The next point too, that they, that Kubler Ross and Kessler make is specifically about acceptance. And so they point out that acceptance does not mean being okay with the loss. What they're talking about more is that we adjust to a world without our loved one and we let go of the plans or the what ifs that were associated with the one that we lost. So essentially it's not, it's not that like I'm okay with this. It's that I have to understand that the world has moved on and that things are going to change. And so essentially what they reference here is it's reorganizing life to live with the memory and still have a valuable life. Some people feel that finding acceptance is betrayal to the lost loved one. So they feel guilt about accepting it and kind of moving on. That does happen a lot. So it's important that this process takes the time that it needs and to recognize that the lost loved one is not being replaced by moving on. Right. I was thinking about maybe another way of saying this is this idea of acceptance is sort of a willingness to consider allowing life to continue to have meaning and maybe even meaning beyond how it was related to that experience of that person or that thing that was lost. And it's just the willingness to sort of forgive yourself and forgive others. And again, just to allow things to be important. And understanding that that doesn't mean that the thing that was lost is no longer important. It just means that we can sort of, we can find meaning out there again, even though those things are no longer that person or that animal or that experience or that relationship is no longer there. And that's sort of the idea of that acceptance piece, as you mentioned. So we have already touched on some of the other conditions under which one might experience loss. And we sort of talked about things like potentially amputation, getting a diagnosis. There are some other conditions, um, we're not going to list all of them, of course, but just to think about, a person might experience grief when they move away from their closest friends or when their closest friends move away from them. 
Yeah, people might experience grief when they lose their pets and serious relationships or even watch this process happen to somebody else. So they may kind of take on some of that emotional baggage that goes along with that. I actually have a tattoo of the dog that I grew up with. I have his face tattooed on my forearm because he was so meaningful to me. So, yeah, I mean, those relationships are important and people experience grief when they lose their job Mm -hmm. like that can be a really hard thing. And that's certainly relevant at the time that we're recording this with everything going on. A lot of people are faced with this. So like that, that could be a very real thing that's going on. And as we mentioned, grief is it's complicated and it's unique to the individual. And so it's difficult to really have a clear expectation. And especially because every time that we experience grief, it may be completely different from the time before. The second time we experience it may be completely different from the first time because the circumstances are different, because we're different. And then the third time will be different still and so on. And so grief, it changes and it evolves as we grow and we experience things. And, and another thing is that grief has no expiration date and it doesn't have a formula because it's so individualized and contextual. And so understanding a holistic model of the psychological process of what it means to have value in something to feel love and that sort of thing might actually really help illuminate what happens to us when we experience that loss. And that's actually what we'll go ahead and turn to now with a research study that pertains to loss and death and some contextual features of that. So with respect to understanding grief as it relates to death, it may be pragmatic to distinguish types of death because the conditions under which death occurs has a noticeable effect on the family of the lost one. So what do we mean by this? Specifically, what are we talking about? So Carola, I think is how you'd say that, Dylan Berger and Mickey Keenan in a 2001 paper suggested three categories for thinking about death. And this is based on how it might affect grieving. And essentially they said there is anticipated or natural death, there's unexpected or accidental death, and deliberate death. And we'll expand on that more in just a moment. Oh, deliberate death sounds problematic. Yes. Yeah. All right. So Dylan Berger and Keenan say in the article, quote, natural and anticipated death, which is mainly due to the aging process or long-term illness, accidental or unexpected death, which is due to man-made or natural disasters and death caused deliberately, as is the case in suicide or homicide, end quote. So those are the three types of death they're talking about specifically. And they cited research suggesting that to reach the point of being able to adjust to live fulfilling and productive lives can take various levels of time depending on those categories. So the expectation is for most people that there's one to two years following that natural death. And again, that's that aging process, long, long-term illness sort of thing. And then adjusting can be much longer and can be associated with other things such as PTSD following death from a man-made event or accident. They didn't provide an exact year framework in there, but it's going to be longer than two years. And then finally, readjusting is even poorer still following something like deliberate death, which is that Um, homicide or suicide. And that can include the experience of trauma, a lack of willingness to share the circumstances of the death, and even stigmatization by peers. Yeah. So to kind of further expound upon that, the quality of the relationship also has an impact on how you experience grief. So you might have somebody that you've lost in one of those three categories, but then the quality of the relationship is going to change those circumstances. However, there was one unique circumstance noted by past research, which is that dependency might be a better predictor of grief. So more specifically, people who had a high degree of dependency on the person that passed may experience stronger feelings of bereavement and loss compared to those who have less dependency. So you might see that with with a really good, strong relationship, the, the level of grief or the intensity of the grief might be more present. Right. And what they found here specifically was when you have situations where you have like a family member, for example, who's very, very dependent on another family member. 
So let's just say, I'm really sorry if this sounds super gendered and sexist, but historically speaking, and generally speaking, let's just say you have, for example, a wife who's very dependent on her husband because she doesn't have any income, maybe doesn't have any specific training, and the husband dies. So this is off. This is real, I use that example because this is mostly what was happening in this study. Even if their relationship wasn't very good, like he wasn't a very kind person, who wasn't very nice to each other, they didn't have a lot of respect for one another. If she was highly dependent on him, she's more likely to experience a really high level of grief than if she had had less dependency and a higher quality relationship. Or they might be maybe somewhat, if it was really high quality relationship, they might be somewhat even. But just that that dependency might actually be a very good predictor and maybe even a more important predictor in some of those cases. And that does make sense. You got to imagine that for that person, they're basically not only have they lost the person they've had this relationship with, but they've also now lost access to the life they're used to having and with no prospects for improving on their situation. That's exactly what I was going to say is this idea. It's not when we talked about loss before, like it may be that that person was less important than the quality of life that they were having, right? So now they've lost income. Now they've lost maybe family members related to that person. Maybe they've lost a whole set of circumstances, not necessarily just that person. They've lost a lot of other things in that specific event. Right. And not to get into this too heavily, but if you imagine sort of abusive relationships too, oftentimes what that can look like is that one of those partners is isolated from peers and family and whatnot. And so when the abuser in that case were to pass away, that person now has zero relationships to turn to, to find sort of comfort. So that's another thing that can be difficult. So it's complex. Yes. And circumstantial and individual and crazy to try and wrap one's head around, but there it is. So in their study, the Dillenberg and Keenan study that we're talking about here, 67 widows of soldiers who died due to sectarian violence or deliberate death in Northern Ireland completed questionnaires related to their grief. So what we found, though, or what they found, not we, because we didn't do the study. They did the study. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't us. What we found, <laughs> what they found was those who reported a happier marriage scored as having a stronger experience of bereavement than those who reported unhappy marriages. Widows whose husbands had been employed in dangerous jobs reported that they worried more about their safety and had greater anticipation of their death. And they also scored as having a stronger experience with bereavement. So you see here, like just in those different circumstances, it changed the score on that questionnaire. Right. And so in a way, thinking about those widows who had husbands who are employed in dangerous jobs, that was sort of an anticipated, like even if it was a circumstance where they were in a position where they knew that they might lose their life. That didn't actually help the circumstance in this case because it was that sort of accidental or maybe man-made, I guess is what I was going for. I, I just want to steer away from deliberate. But in those cases, it was still really difficult to accept, even though they maybe knew the danger was there. And I, I think that's an interesting finding to glean from that, if you will. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So I think, you know, as we start describing this and kind of talking about what grief is, I think we have to kind of take a, a step to look at the behavioral perspective. I think we always have to kind of do that. Right. So we do want to spend a little bit of time talking about that. Yeah. Essentially, like another framework to just sort of think about this in a way that depends a lot on how we interact with our with our circumstances and the processes there is sort of the, the next step to where we want to take this discussion. Yeah. So the most coherent way to describe this process is to describe attachment more generally. Now, we're not going to talk about attachment today because that's an entire topic, probably do an entire podcast just on attachment alone. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we've been talking about doing sort of a suite on development, and we've released two episodes on development, but inside of a development, like psychological and human development, there's a whole section on attachment that'll it'll probably come up in that context. Yeah, for sure. So to summarize that, though, just to, for the context here, when we settle into a particular routine, that routine can involve good and bad, boring and entertaining, what have you. It can include all those different things. That's not to say that all routines are good, but they often contain an element of value to us. So whatever that routine is, it's important to us. And as part of that routine, we expect sort of common cues or contexts almost unconsciously. The time, the setting, the people, the actions that we take, the outcomes that we expect, etc. And when that routine represents happiness or fulfillment in kind of any way, then those cues begin to carry some amount of intrinsic value relative to that setting. And that's where we start to see that development of attachment. Yeah. And so then what ends up happening sometimes is those cues and that routine can become part of our sense of identity. Furthermore, that routine can represent a workflow that is comfortable and easy and allows us to efficiently navigate our lives. So I don't know about you. I'm in a pretty good routine. And if I if it got disrupted anyway or like I lost any part of it, it would be a little bit problematic for me. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, once they start to develop sort of the routine that they get used to, having that be interrupted can be very distressing. Now, for some people, that routine does not represent fulfillment, and so interrupting it can actually be very rewarding, and they look for opportunities for that. But for many people, they find that routine fulfilling. So there's another contextual feature that's really important. Important to note here is that we are very social creatures. That is just something that we do a lot of, hard to wrap a lot of understanding around that without really diving into maybe biology and evolution. But we are social creatures, and oftentimes the most important parts of our routine are those that involve the relationships that we have with other people, with animals, and even to inanimate objects or processes, sort of getting back into that routine and workflow thing. Yeah. So we have what seems to be this unlimited capacity to add these relationships and have meaningful experiences with them. So we have this really great way of taking this situation or taking this relationship and adding more value to it, adding more meaning to it, creating routines around it, and just do we just do a lot with it. So to lose it is a problem. And what's especially important in understanding this is that those relationships get tangled up with all those cues and that that can include things in that relationship, such as items that people have, the clothes that they wear, their mannerisms, the locations at which you may have interacted with that person, phrases or sort of things that they commonly say, their favorite things, the things that they liked, or even colors or smells that become associated with that person. And with that relationship, all of those things start to be sort of tangled together in this big mesh of sort of how do we, if you want to think about it sort of as like a a cognitive semantic web of relations in our experience of that person, what happens is, oh, we'll get into it in a moment, but when that when the center of that web collapses, we still have the rest of the web there that reminds us. Yeah. I mean, I think of it like a simple and probably uh, relatable example would be like, maybe there's a certain record or a certain song you don't listen to. You were in a relationship, you broke up, it was a hard breakup, and now you can't listen to whatever record it is because it was so ingrained in that relationship that you had that you lost. Yeah. I've, I've known people for whom that was very specifically a thing. So yeah, not uncommon. Yeah. So kind of going back to the point that Abraham just made, when those valuable cues, those routines, those relationships are disrupted, all of that history and all of those fond memories are disrupted. So it's like this ripple effect that you see. Yeah. 
If those were associated with pleasant thoughts and feelings, then the experience is often one of a sense that those cues are reminders and that we miss the person, the relationship, whatever it is. Uh, we miss whatever it is that they remind us of. Yeah, exactly. And so we have all of those associated cues or reminders that still exist in that web, as I mentioned. So all of those relations, that big entangled mess of things that are that are reminders there. But then that that key element, the source of that happiness in that relationship is now gone. But again, all of the other reminders are there. And so we it almost elevates their how clearly we sort of experience them by the fact that like we see them all the time now. Yeah. So for example, like if you and your partner separated the place where you both lived, the music that you shared, the places that you went together, those are all going to be really intense cues for you. And I kind of touched upon that before about listening to a record and whatnot. Yeah. But you'll see that it's like, it's not just that it's all these other things. It's maybe a specific pizza place that you guys enjoy, or maybe it's a book that you read together or a movie or even a movie theater. It could be any number of things. So you might think of grief as when you have affectionate feelings and memories of the lost person or thing, and that all of the things serve to remind you that you no longer have that recipient of those affectionate feelings. So all those things are still there, but that person, like kind of Abraham was saying, that that center of the web is gone, but all the rest of it is still there. So you're still coming into contact with all those things without the thing that makes them important. And I found this quote that I think, I think it says it so beautifully and so nicely and actually so accurately as well and it is quote grief i've learned is really just love it's all the love you want to give but cannot all that unspent love gathers up in the corners of your eyes the lump in your throat and in that hollow part of your chest grief is just love with no place to go end quote and this is from someone named jamie anderson i couldn't find anything about the source of this quote the person if it, if it was like from a book or a poem or a youtube channel i honestly don't know um, and I tried Googling that name a few times and I just, I couldn't, I just kept coming back to the quote. So whoever this person is, I think that she absolutely nailed it. He or she absolutely nailed it. And the way that they described it is that when we have those reminders, we have all of that love and kindness or that importance of whatever the thing that was lost and we no longer have a place to put it. Yeah. We have all the reminders of it there and no place for it to go. And I think that just says really nicely sort of what's going on here from this this standpoint of how we interact with our environments. Yeah. And I think that's a, a really great way to kind of go into how to manage it because we've all probably experienced something like that and have probably developed our own ways to manage it. But there are some pretty important and pretty useful ways to treat and manage grief in general and, and kind of how to get past that lump in your throat and the buildup in the corner of your eyes. So speaking of which, let's go ahead and transition to some of the research on treatment and or management of this. And I do want to say that as we go into this section, it's important to note that feeling grief and experiencing this process is not wrong. It's very natural and it's something that we're, that what's going to happen where it becomes difficult is when it becomes is that you don't get out of it. It's this is that complicated or complex grief, the one that that goes on for a very long period of time, and you start seeing all these other side effects that it becomes problematic. So, no matter how you experience grief, it's not a wrong thing to do. It's just like there are a lot of ways to find additional support and help, particularly if you start getting stuck. 
Right. So with that in mind, let's go into some of this treatment and management. So first you've got Malmere et al. 2017. They evaluated an acceptance and commitment therapy intervention or an ACT intervention with 34 patients referred for grief counseling. Yeah, now they were measuring hope and anxiety as their dependent variables based on some self-report measures. And they reported a significant increase in their measure of hope and a 45% decrease in their measure of anxiety in their study. Okay. So, I mean, that's a pretty significant increase. So it seems like it. So the authors provided very few details of the components of the intervention simply, but simply that they used ACT for 12 sessions, one session per week, and each session was about 90 to 120 minutes long. There's a lot of sort of digging into this article understanding what those different measures meant and how they were evaluating them. And again, I was a little unclear exactly what the components of that therapeutic relationship consisted or consisted of so that we could provide a good framework. But essentially finding that at least for the way that they applied it, they did see some good outcomes for those patients who received that treatment. There was also this 2008 blog by uh, famed acceptance and commitment training practitioner Russ Harris suggested 13 steps for managing grief. All right. So the first one that Russ Harris actually mentions is this idea of accept what you are feeling. And and that's not saying like, it's just more like the idea of just like, I understand that I'm feeling this. Like I'm having this feeling right now in this moment. Right. The second one is know and accept that there will be times of feeling overwhelmed. So kind of preparing yourself and, and like priming yourself for this idea that there are going to be times that are really tough and there are going to be times that are a little bit easier, just knowing and acknowledging that that is a, a possibility in your future. Number three is practice mindfulness and keep yourself anchored. And so what they talk about kind of in this, in this realm is understanding that like you're here, you're now being present, anchoring yourself to that moment. And we do a whole episode on anchoring too, which is really cool. Yeah. Uh, a little bit different than this type of anchoring, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was like monetary anchoring. <laughs> yeah. We're not talking about money right now. So this next one on uh, number four, and this is evaluate your values and connect with those values such that you feel like you have a clear understanding of what's important to you. Number five is it's set up like this. It's, it's set up as a question that is posed to the person that is experiencing grief. And so the way this is set up is consider the question, if you have to choose between never feeling grief and never having meaningful relationships or having meaningful relationships and having grief, which would you choose? And I believe that this is intended to be a rhetorical question. And this gets at the sort of saying that you may have heard, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Yeah. And that seems to be what sort of is going on here is like, would you rather have a life where you never had an important and meaningful relationship so that you could avoid feeling grief? Or is it worth experiencing grief so that you can have a life where you have meaningful relationships? And most people, I think, would probably say they'd rather have a life full of meaningful relationships. Hopefully, grief is not so crippling that that becomes unimportant. But, you know, it's just, I guess, a question worth asking. Yeah. I would say that's probably also a question worth asking when you can kind of think clearly about it not like when you're in the throes of having like a depressive episode or something like that yeah like thinking of it like you know when you're at your baseline how would you answer that yeah very much so and then number six here is to practice self-care and self-compassion and i think that that's good advice generally speaking but yes that's certainly a good one here yeah and when they say self-care this is something that's like a a near and dear topic to my heart you know when we talk about this the idea of self-care is not like just going to get your nails done or going to get a massage or having a glass of wine. It's like sometimes self-care is just like taking a shower, 
you know, because sometimes when people grieve, they don't even do the things like that. They don't brush their teeth. They don't get up out of bed sometimes. And like self-care is sometimes just those things going for a walk in the sunlight, you know, just little things like that can be, can go a long way as far as self-care goes. Yeah. And not to say that like the things that you mentioned would not be considered self-care, but just say that that is not restricted to things like that. But right. yeah, it is taking some time for yourself to do something that is helpful and valuable to you. Yeah. And to meet your needs. So number seven is look out for the tendency to develop unhelpful stories like I can't do this. You'll see that a lot where people will say, I'm not strong enough. I can't do this. I can't do this without you. You know, those stories and that that kind of like that rule that people set can become a, a larger problem later. Yeah, they, they're framed as absolutes and as if they were objectively true. And when you look back at it, you can acknowledge that when you look at what happened, that's different than the narrative that you weave about what happened. Yeah. So another one here is the idea of finding vitality in the pain that you experience. And what that means is that you take an opportunity to notice that the fact that you are experiencing grief and loss means that you are alive and have valuable things in your life such that you can experience in grief and lo loss of those things. If you had nothing of value, there'd be nothing to grieve. And so this, this I think is related to the one previously of this idea of, of sort of like, would you rather have a, a life with things that are valuable and then acknowledge that that comes with loss? I guess realizing that in the pain that you experience, this says something about the fact that you get to have a life where things are important. Yeah. I like that idea. Like feeling anything is better than feeling nothing at all. Right. All right. Number nine in this list that Harris, Russ Harris, Dr. Harris, I should say, right, has come up with. Consider how you might grow from the experience. And so that might be very difficult at first. You're probably not thinking of like where this is going to go next or what that might look like, but it's worth looking at that idea of, of that you're going to learn from the experience. You're going to learn a lot about yourself from the experience. You're going to learn a lot about that person from the experience. You know, there's a lot that you can kind of gather from that, even if it's painful in the moment. He also gives the recommendation to consider some kind of grief ritual in which you can comfortably and openly express the grief and bereavement that you feel. And so that there's sort of a safe space for you to have that emotion and let it play out and not necessarily feel like you have to hold back or restrict it or put on a brave face. I like that idea relating to number six, which had to do with self-compassion, because that gives you a space to be kind to yourself. Yeah, that's a good point. Good, yeah. good relating that back. I agree. Number 11 and number 12 are going to be, remember the saying, this too shall pass. That's number 11, right? So everything is temporary. Things do move yeah. forward. And like, this is what you're having and what you're feeling in this moment, but it's going to be okay. And then the idea of number 12, taking it easy. And that's, I think, goes back to this idea of self-compassion too, which is like, you know, some people try to, or maybe have to stay within these routines. They have to kind of push forward or, or maybe they push themselves so much out of the, you know, the, the space of having to grieve and, and, and deal with stuff. Just take it easy. Just take it easy on yourself. Be kind to yourself. Understand that it's an emotion you're going to feel. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be intense. And that's perfectly okay advice that the eagles had a long time ago so <laughs> i like that <laughs> you can go back and find that song if you if that's a, a band that you like some people feel strongly about that but today's all about references to bands from like the 60s 70s and 80s so we're good that's a fair point and finally number 13 while acknowledging what you have lost notice and appreciate what you still have and this is going back to the the sort of there are important things around you in life and Oftentimes when you lose something, maybe even the most important thing, that doesn't mean that you maybe have lost everything. For some people, 
again, that might not necessarily be true. Maybe they have lost everything, but you know, it's, it's look for value where there's value to be found and maybe create the possibility that there could be value even where you don't see it. I like that. I think all those steps are important reminders for kind of what we're going through right now, right? You know, specifically understanding that like, hey, we might be losing something. We might have lost something. So kind of take a moment to be kind to yourself and all that. But in light of the fact that reminders of what was lost are going to be all around us, another useful strategy that we want to talk about real quick is this idea of getting back into a regular routine as much as possible and starting to rewrite those cues as much as you can so they'll have a new effect. So it's not going to be that those cues are going to be entirely erased from that person that you love and that you adore, but also understanding that cue can take on a new meeting or a separate meeting. It can take on multiple meanings. It doesn't have to be signal to that single person. It can be tied to some other source of happiness. Yeah. So I want to be careful here because for some people, just continuing on with the routine that they have is a very, very healthy way to cope with their grief in that they acknowledge what they have, what they've lost, and they have an appreciation for that. And they essentially allow their new experience to shape the reminders in their life such that that does not cripple them permanently and that they can have those reminders and feel okay with them being there. And like, even if that means that when you find that reminder, you find that you cry, that's okay because like you otherwise can go about having sort of the life that has the fulfilling activities that it would normally have in it. And so for some people getting back into that routine is tricky and that may not be the best thing for them to do. But again, this is just a, this is contextual. It's, it's unique. It depends on the person, but there have been many of those people who find that that routine uh, really brings a lot of comfort to them and that they use that, like that, that's actually the, the aspect of this from, from Dr. Harris leaning into acknowledging what else do you still have that has value in your life that you can lean into. And it's like, Hey, like I lost a loved one. I still have other things in my life that I love. I love my job. I love my routine. I love my pets. I love my, the fact that I get to have the things that I've worked for. Maybe that's a weird way of saying it, but just that like sticking to that routine can help that be illuminated for some people. And maybe for some people that's not the case, but that's just a, a piece of recommendation potentially. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to probably wrap it up, right? Yeah. It's hard to, to fit a lot of take-homes in here and sort of like, cause there's, we sort of covered a lot, but I think I take home. I, I think I would generally say is, and I actually just want to come back to that quote that I liked so much that I found is that grief is love that has no place to go. This idea that a lot of times what people have is they find something else to put in the place of the thing that was lost. And that's not a replacement. It is giving that compassion, that love, that memory, a new outlet for where you place that compassion and you'll never not care about the thing that was lost. You'll just have a different way of coping with what's going on in the moment. And so I think that's a take on point. Yeah. I think a big one for me is just understanding that it's okay to grieve how you need to just understanding that you will grieve differently in every circumstance, in every situation that comes up with every relationship, with everything that's, that's a little bit different. You're going to engage in whatever thoughts and patterns of behavior and whatever in relation to that thing. Like that's okay. But understanding at what point that becomes a problem and at what point you need a little bit more help 
and guidance through it. And, you know, there are plenty of people that can get through grief without ever having to go to a counselor. And that's perfectly okay too, but there are some people that need it. So understanding what your individual needs are in that moment are going to be the most critical thing. And honestly on that, like, there's no harm in going to seek help from a grief counselor, even if you were going through it in a perfectly healthy way. It's just someone else to help guide that process. Exactly. And help you through it. So it's like, even if you were going to make it through on your own, someone else might even be a, a good support on that and just be someone else to to sort of listen to you and, and help you find a useful strategy. So don't rule it out just because you feel like you're strong enough. Like, honestly, there's probably no harm to just looking into it for most people. Yeah. Even if it's benign, that's better than what most people will experience yep i think i would also say this too shall pass is a good place yes i don't know if that's a great place to end on but i think that's i just i like that general sentiment find value out there yep shall we recommend some things yes let's do it recommendations All right. So my recommendation this week is another podcast. And generally, I try not to recommend podcasts on podcasts because we are all fighting for the space in your ears. But I thought this one was a really fun one because I am kind of a music nerd and I've been spending more time getting back into kind of the history of the music that I like. And so I listened to this podcast called No Dogs in Space, which is just a great a great name for a podcast. Great. Uh, the cover art's really cool. And it's all about kind of the history. Right now they're doing a, a serial series on um, the history of punk. Cool. So the first four episodes were about the Stooges. They did two episodes on this band called Suicide. Right now they're in the middle of doing their their three-part episode on The Damned. And it's just this really intense, cool, deep dive on these bands, their history. The Stooges one is wild. And it's like a full two, two and a half hours per episode. It just... <laughs> just bonkers it just uh, you have to from from a purely psychological standpoint just go listen to the stooges because it is a journey and that's the only way i can describe it iggy pop is a journey i might really have to take you up on that one that sounds really cool yeah the stooges one is actually a lot of fun and what's really cool about it too is they talk about the context in which these bands occur and what they were going through and they reference records and bands and it's like i mean it's, it's a podcast for music nerds by music nerds but everyone comes with a cool playlist. And so you get this really cool playlist to go along with it from all the bands they play in it. And it's not just the Stooges. It's like bands around the Stooges, bands that are related to the Stooges, stuff like that. So it's really cool. I've been really digging it lately. Boo boo. Yep. Or us by us. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My recommendation, again, I don't know how dated this is going to feel, but I think honestly it's relevant at any point. But my recommendation is to send someone t- a text or a DM or make a phone call or really any kind of message to say something nice to someone. I honestly, I think that it just feels good to do it. It feels good to receive it. Just take a minute to do something nice, to say something nice to someone. I mean, I think honestly, it'd be in your best interest to say something nice to someone you maybe don't feel a lot of nice things toward. But if it's easy, like just text your friend and be like, hey, I appreciate that you did whatever, or that you are who you are for me in this, or whatever. Just say something nice. Like, hey, I was thinking that you're a cool uh, person and i don't know i don't i, yeah. I don't I'm, I'm not great at this right now but <laughs> yeah whatever's nice for you yeah exactly nice is gonna be different people like i i know for some people that i know like saying f you is like that's our way of sort of saying hi and it's just that's just the dynamic that we have yeah and it's fun you know and so that's that might be where people are at but just you know send someone a text or dm in a way that says something kind to them and that that's my recommendation yeah, I like that. I think that's very meaningful. <laughs> and I like it. I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. Great. 
All right, cool. Well, this has been a long one. Appreciate you listening and recording with me today, Shane. And if you want to reach out to us, find us on social media at WWD, WWD podcast, share this with a friend, leave us a rating and review, subscribe, all the stuff. If you'd like to share one of your stories about grief or you have anything else you would like to tell us about, if you think we did a great job, or even if you think that we didn't do a great job, you can let us know. Contact us via email or on those social media platforms. And we might even read it on here if it's a contribution to our listeners. So, <laughs> Agreed. Yes. <laughs> awesome. All right. With that, I think we, at least I don't have anything else. You have anything else? Nope. I'm good. Perfect. I think we're out. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. Bye. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.